as we continue the study of the connection between the presence of the Lord and the power of the Lord. Now, I want to give you a very brief background because we have a lot to cover this morning. David has died. He never got to see any of the construction of the temple that he longed so badly to build, uh, but God had restricted that and said Solomon's going to build it. So now Solomon has completed the temple. Hiram of Tyre has come and kind of put the finishing touches on it with a lot of gold and silver and bronze and brass. And the treasures have been brought in to the temple and now everything's ready for the dedication of the temple to the Lord. This is a pivotal moment in Jewish history. 1 Kings chapter 8. And we're going to look just at a few verses this morning and kind of go through it verse by verse. 1 Kings chapter 8, let's start in verse 1. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' households of the sons of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. All the men of Israel assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. They brought the ark of the Lord and the tent of the meeting and all the holy utensils which were in the tent, and the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests, verse 6, brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles from above. But the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside. They are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. It happened that when the priests, verse 10, came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, if we look at verse 1, we see that all of Israel was present for this time of celebration and this time of dedication. Estimates of the population of Israel at that point were just about or just under 300,000 people. So there's a humongous crowd, humongous throng of people that has come to Jerusalem. The whole purpose is to dedicate the temple and to bring up the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, we have been uh, influenced over what the Ark of the Covenant is, maybe by Indiana Jones years ago or by whatever. But the Ark of the Covenant was was considered to be God's throne among the people. Wherever it went with them, it was a symbol of his presence and of his power. And in chapter 16 of the book of Leviticus, the Lord says that he would dwell on the wings of the cherubim on top of the mercy seat in the ark. If you have the picture back there, you can see just a general idea of what the ark looked like. God said where you see that little light, that's a depiction that his presence was going to dwell and sit there on the Bema seat, the mercy seat of God. Now, the Lord had used the ark in very powerful ways. He had shown Israel miracles through it as, a, as an expression of who he was, an expression of his power and leading. The two most prominent examples we have are when they crossed the Jordan River to go into the Promised Land for the first time in the book of Joshua. And you remember the story that God holds back the water seven miles upstream and they walk across on dry land and they grab the stones out of the river and they build a memorial of what God had done. We also see the ark at Jericho when they take the city and they're walking around and blowing the trumpets. The ark was there and it was what caused the city to be captured. So it was highly important to Israel and highly important to the Lord. You see that there were poles there. The ark could not be touched. It had to be carried in a certain way. It had to be placed in a certain way. It had to be uh, put in only certain locations. It was considered very, very sacred because it was the place where God's presence resided and where his mercy was given out to the people on the Day of Atonement. It was also a symbol of God's judgment and God's wrath. So this was not just some box. It was not just some, uh, some token or some 
uh, you know, kind of trinket that they carried around to make themselves feel better. This was literally the place where God's presence resided. So here we see in verse Kings 8 that they are bringing the ark up into Israel. And God has told them, be careful, don't misuse it. In fact, there had been a time in the past where they had gone into battle against the Philistines and they said, well, let's take the ark down on the battlefield and we'll summon God's presence and God will wipe out the Philistines. And exactly the opposite thing happened. The Philistines took the ark away and it says at that point, the hand of the Lord and the glory of the Lord departed from Israel. Now, what we see here in this passage is in verse 4 that they're bringing up the ark to Jerusalem. And it's very interesting and very specific how they're doing it because they're bringing it up to this new temple that's been built to the Lord and is going to be dedicated to the Lord. There's a lot of debate over where the temple was actually located. There's no doubt that it was in Jerusalem. There's no doubt that it was on Mount Zion. Mount Zion was where Abraham had gone to sacrifice Isaac in that uh, very memorable situation in the book of Genesis. But there is a question about where on the mountain it is. If you put up the next picture, you see that this picture of Jerusalem, this is how it looks today. And right here, if I can use my handy-dandy little pointer, right where you see that right there is considered Mount Zion. This whole thing is Mount Zion. But that is the debate over, was this the original Mount Zion? And they're starting to say now, from a number of things that have happened, including finding a piece of the old wall, that that actually was where Mount Zion was. So the scholars have concluded, and there's still debate about it, that um, the land has shifted a little bit, and that this actually is where the temple was. If you put up the next picture, you can see it a little bit more closely. This is the Temple Mount. And this is where um, the front of, this is the Mount of Olives right here. This is the Kidron Valley, which is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And then this is called the Temple Mount. The Wailing Wall, if you've seen that, is right there in that little space right there. Right now, this is the Temple Mount. And scholars have concluded, and I believe it's to be true, that this is where the original temple of Solomon was built. You can see the area around it is very rugged and very rocky. Now, that's important that we understand that that's where the temple was because if you've ever wondered, is the Bible real? How do I know this is just some archaic document? Ask yourself why millions and millions of people and nations throughout the Middle East, and even the United States is involved in it, care about a 38-acre piece of land. This is the most controversial and most hotly contested piece of real estate on the face of the earth. And you see that gold building that is on top of the Temple Mount, that's called the Dome of the Rock. That's a Muslim mosque that was built in 700 uh, A.D., when Jerusalem was conquered by the Muslims, and now it is a place of worship for Muslims. It's also a place of worship for Jews, but Jews are not allowed up onto the Temple Mount. That's why sometimes when you see in the news there's rock throwing and hostility and all kinds of stuff, that's taking place right in this area right here, because this is considered sacred to the Muslims, but it's also considered sacred to the Jews. This right here is one of the most sacred places on earth for Jews. So can you tell that there's going to be just a little bit of conflict there, right? 38 acres. That right there is the piece of land on the face of the earth that most people care about. Now, if the Bible isn't true, who cares, right? Who cares what the Muslims and the Jews are, are debating about? It's just a crummy little piece of land. But this is how you know that what we're reading this morning, what we're studying this morning is true because that's where the original temple was. And the Muslims are saying, get off our land, this is ours. And the Jews are saying, no, by the way, we won that land in 1948. That land's ours, and we actually want to build another temple. In fact, the plans are already drawn up. They have blueprints for a new temple. Because the Jews believe they have an eternal claim to that. God had promised this land to Abraham. But the Muslims say, mm -mm, we're here, possessions nine-tenths. So all the debate, if you look at Israel in the news, and I hope you watch what's going on in Israel, hope you watch what's going on in Egypt, 
and Yemen and Libya and all the other countries right now because all of this fits with 1 Kings 8. Right now, the whole debate is who owns the West Bank? Who owns Gaza? Who owns the Temple Mount? Should the Palestinians have a state? And the Palestinians say, we want East Jerusalem. In other words, we want that. This is the debate that's going on right now in history. Now that's an incredible struggle and it'll only be resolved when someday Jesus comes and he stands right up there and the Mount of Olives, it says, is going to split in two. And Jesus is going to walk down here through the Kidron Valley, past the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed before he was crucified. He's going to walk up here and right there, you see that? Everybody see the red dot? Isn't that a cool red dot? Don't you like this little tool? That's called the Eastern Gate or the Golden Gate. It's the only gate of Jerusalem that's closed. It's blocked up. It's, it's got, you know, cinder block. It's, it just looks completely closed. Jesus is going to walk up, and just by his voice, he's going to open it, and he's going to walk right through here and walk onto the Temple Mount, and not one person's going to be able to contest him. Not one person's going to be able to withstand him and say, you don't have a right to be here because he's the King of Kings and he's the Lord of Lords and he's going to set up his reign right there. So we need to understand what's going on in history and how it relates to this passage. Now in 1 Kings 8, nobody could have foreseen that. Nobody knew that all that was coming. All they knew was that this is the time where we want the presence of God to come and fill this place. In the same way, we get excited and we think someday Jesus is going to stand right there. And we're anxious for that. We say, even so, come quickly, Lord. In the same way we're excited about the presence of God coming back, they're wanting at this point for the presence of God to come and fill this place. So Solomon says, everybody get together. We're going to have a dedication. Now the timing of this, a lot of history this morning, so stay with me. Maybe write some things down so you don't just kind of look at me and you know, why is he wearing that? Whatever, okay? Why is his hair doing those goofy things? Get, get past all that. This is the word, right? I know, my hair is goofy. I, you don't have to tell me. I looked in the mirror. Solomon chooses a very specific time to do this. This is a year of jubilee. Randy didn't know that I was preaching this passage when he picked the songs this morning. But we sang that in Days of Elijah. The year of jubilee. What's the year of jubilee? Well, every seven years, there was a, a Sabbath year. At the end of seven sevens, 49 years, they had what was called a year of Jubilee. The 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And during the year of Jubilee, God said, I want you to let the land go fallow. And I want you to return land that was owned by somebody else before. I want you to return the land to its original owner, if you took it for the wrong reason. And I want you to allow any slave that wants to go free to go free. Now, the slave can choose to stay. And if so, you need to take them, put their ear up against the door, take an awl and cram it through their ear and make a hole and put a gold ring in there. That slave's yours forever. But on the year of Jubilee, they're allowed to go free. So he chooses the year of Jubilee as a time of symbolism that the Lord owns the land the Lord owns that land today. The Jews don't own it. The Palestinians don't own it. The Muslims don't own it. God owns it. And he said, this is God's land. He is the one who has delivered us. He is the one who has set us free. And now as our Lord and our Savior, he is the one that we are going to dedicate the temple to in his name. The year of Jubilee. At the same time, this is also during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was established in the Old Testament when they were wandering through the wilderness. And it was a yearly festival where they lived in booths. They had little tents, little houses, like twice the size of this area that I'm in. And they would stay in the booths as a remembrance of the time when they were in the wilderness. And as a member of the tabernacle, which was built so the Lord could fulfill his promise to dwell with the people in the wilderness. You got it? You with me so far? So it's the year of Jubilee where God owns everything. It's the Feast of Tabernacles as a member of God's deliverance and God's salvation and their dependence on him. Now they bring this temple. And the temple is designed to replace the tabernacle. So they choose the Feast of Tabernacles to say, Lord, now that we've built a permanent home for you, 
We want your presence to come and fill this place. Very significant time. In fact, Solomon waits 11 months after the temple is done just so he can get to this point. He doesn't rush ahead. Well, we got the, the occupancy notice. All right, next Sunday's our dedication. Quick roundup, everybody. Bring all 300,000 people in. He waits 11 months because he says, symbolically, we need to choose the year of Jubilee and we need to choose the Feast of Tabernacles. So we can say to the Lord, Lord, bring your presence down. Now that leads us to verse 3. And you see in verse 3 that as they come to Jerusalem, the older people lead the way. Why? You would think they'd put the younger people who are still kind of energetic and spry and excited and, and passionate. You know, young people, all right, they're all passionate and they don't know about what, but they're passionate. He says, uh-uh, put the older people in front. I thought about this this week. I believe this is because the older people were the ones with the historical perspective. David had reigned for 40 years. Saul before him had reigned anywhere from 10 to 20 years. So roughly 50 to 60 years of kingship in Israel. God originally had said, I'm going to be your king. I'm going to lead you. The people said, that's wonderful. We want a human king. They chose Saul. He was the wrong choice. Saul strayed from the Lord, chased David, tried to hunt him down. It was a mess. God puts David in, anoints him through Samuel, puts him in place. And for 40 years, David leads Israel like no one ever has. So I believe Solomon brings the old people and he says, you lead the way because you know and you've seen the history of it. The one thing about young people is they don't have the sense of historical perspective that we who are getting older and closer to AARP, that's me, know, right? The older you get, the more you've seen, the more you learn, and hopefully the wiser you've gotten about how life should be. So he says, put them up front because they remember the low point under Saul and they remember the high point under David. And as they walk in leadership, the people look and they say to themselves, this is a not so subtle reminder that we are supposed to continue to follow the Lord. Then the priests come with the ark. The priests never carried the ark. The Levites carried the ark. But the priests now are carrying the ark and they're bringing it up. And they don't just bring the ark, but look back at the passage. They're also bringing, in verse 4, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the moving church, the place in the wilderness where God's presence and God's power had come down. And then they bring up the holy utensils that belonged in the temple. And as they're going along, they're sacrificing sheep and oxen, so numerous, so many that people lose track. They keep sacrificing and keep offering and keep giving to the Lord. And as they keep walking, another sheep gets its throat cut and another oxen gets killed and they start to sacrifice and sacrifice. I mean, imagine the scene. You've got hundreds of thousands of people. You've got the older people in front. You've got the Ark of the Covenant being carried and you've got animals just being slaughtered everywhere. Think about this, even though that seems incredibly strange. Think about this in terms of our worship. Now you say, well, Rhodes, come on. The old people are in front. You got this gold box being carried. You got animals dying. That looks nothing like my morning. Anybody have that kind of a morning? Anybody slaughter a sheep on the way into church this morning? Anybody walk in with rocks and where do I put this? I've I, I, I got to kill this, right? Because I'm here for worship. What I want you to see in verse 4 is how absolutely unrestrained the worship was. It was unrestrained. There was no hindrance to them. They held nothing back. They're praising God. They're singing. They're offering sacrifices. They're doing everything they can to say to the Lord, we love you and we worship you and you're worthy. And notice in the text it says, that Solomon and all the congregation did this. It wasn't like just the priests were offering sacrifices. Everybody came prepared and everybody did it. Nobody was stopping to analyze, well, I don't really like blood. And, and we, our, our sheep, I don't think is going to cut it. And, you know, it's kind of messy to do that. 
and, and we don't really feel like singing today. You know, we know everybody's singing. Can you imagine a 300,000 vo voice choir? 300,000 voices praising, singing, and you know how, how demonstrative Jewish people can be in terms of their emotion. That's not a, a racist comment. That's just the fact. They're very demonstrative and very loud. And this, imagine the volume of this and the picture of this. There's no restraint. There's nobody saying, well, I don't know. I'm kind of tired this morning. I don't feel like it. Everything is moving forward. There's no time to kind of count the cost. Everybody sees this as a fresh opportunity to worship the Lord. Now, how does that apply to you and me? Think about it in terms of our congregation. Not just in terms of monetary gifts. You guys have been incredibly, incredibly generous to giving to the work of the Lord. I want to commend you for it. But this is not just about monetary gifts. We know Scripture talks about that. We've heard that before. But I want to say this is more in terms of how we worship. Now, we think of that word too narrowly sometimes. Well, it's the singing. That's our worship time this morning. Every single thing we've done since we walked in the room is worship. Singing, prayer, fellowship, studying God's word, the, the work that's going on, the teaching of children, the holding of babies, that's an act of service. It's an act of worship, Romans 12 too. So how do we approach that attitude of worship? What's our attitude behind it? How do, how do we feel, how do we react as we come in the presence of the Lord. One thing I want you to see in verse 5, look at it, is that the people are undeniably wholehearted in how they worship. They're rejoicing loudly in God's mercy and God's faithfulness. They're overwhelmed by His presence. They're unhindered in their sacrifice. Nobody is holding back. Now as all this is going on, look at verse 6, the priests bring the ark to its place. The ark had a very specific place. It belonged in the inner sanctuary, in the most holy place, the holy of holies. This is where only one high priest was allowed to go once a year. This was the place where the glory of God would fill the room. And now the temple as the permanent place of God's presence, now that they're in the promised land, is going to be filled with the presence of God. See, in the desert, they had the tabernacle, the tent of meeting that they're carrying now. And that was set up, and all 12 tribes were camped around it. It was very specific how it was laid out. And then God's presence would descend, and Moses would go in into the presence of God, and mercy would be shown. This now is the permanent place. Let me give you some perspective on, on how big these were. The tabernacle was 75 excuse me, 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. This ballroom that we're in this morning is 75 feet long, 48 feet wide, and 15 feet high. So the tabernacle was roughly twice the size of this room plus higher. The temple which was built was twice the size of that. Would you put up the next picture for me, please? The temple right here, oop, wrong one, that's not going to get me anywhere. A pen will not show you what's going on. This is the temple. This was the inner temple. This is called the outer court where the bronze labor was. This is the inner temple. Back here was the Holy of Holies. This was four times as big as this room. It was twice as big as the tabernacle was. Now, why does that matter? It matters because the exact specifications were exactly twice the size of the tabernacle. In other words, Solomon is saying here, this is going to be a continuation of what the tabernacle was, which was the place of God's dwelling. Now there's no mistaking, if we look at history, if we look at the Garden of Eden, if we look at the tabernacle, if we look at the temple, there's no mistaking in the Old Testament that God wanted to be among his people. He wanted to be with them. He wanted them to know him. He wanted them to worship him. And he wanted them to be saved by him. The tabernacle and the temple are the precursors for what we now experience. 
the tabernacle and the temple were an advanced picture, listen now, of the incarnation. They were an advanced picture of Christ coming down and taking a human body and presenting himself as the holy and righteous Lord of all, showing his power and offering the ultimate gift of mercy through salvation. Christ was the embodiment of the temple. Now, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit indwells believers, and we are considered the temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, as Paul says in Hebrews, it's not a temple built with human hands. Now it's the temple of our body, which is made in God's image. This verse has been misappropriated, right, by every single gym on the face of the earth. Your body's a temple, and, and you need to treat it right and, and be all buff and strong, just like I am, right? Don't laugh. Why are you laughing? Everybody, while well, your body's a temple, you need to eat right. Listen, that, that's a wonderful concept. It has absolutely nothing to do with what Scripture is talking about. What Scripture is talking about is incredibly symbolic. The tabernacle, God came and dwelled. The temple, God came and dwelled. Incarnation, Christ came and dwelled among us. Now, Holy Spirit indwells us. And we are considered to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place where God's presence dwells. No more are there human priests. No more are there veils. No more is it a day of atonement once a year where our sins are covered. This is why when Jesus died, what happened? The veil tore apart, top to bottom. And God says, now as a believer, you have direct access, somebody say amen now, to the throne of grace. You come in boldly as my children because I am now dwelling within you. Think about the strength and the power of that this week when you face a trial or a difficulty or you're discouraged or the enemy's trying to hit you with temptation. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Nothing to do with exercise. We should exercise. Has nothing to do with eating vegetables. Please eat vegetables. I sound like a father now. This is about the indwelling of God. So what do we do? In the same way that the high priest, when he went in for the Day of Atonement, had to cleanse himself for seven days. And if there was one unconfessed sin or one blemish in his character, as soon as he went in, he would drop dead. Because this was the holy presence of God. If your body and my body and your life and my life is a temple of the Holy Spirit, as Francis Schaeffer asked, how should we then live? How should we live? You know, the outward appearance can be faked. Anybody can act like a Christian. But God says, I don't care about the outward appearance. I look at your heart. I want to know what's going on in your heart. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Jeremiah 17, it's a verse I worked with a young girl in Awana on Wednesday night, says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Romans 1 says that when we reject God, the foolish heart is darkened. Our hearts are not pure. But he also says in Romans chapter 8, as believers you're redeemed and cleansed and transformed by God's grace and you no longer walk by the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who walk according to the flesh do the deeds of the flesh. Those who walk according to the Spirit do the deeds and the work of the Spirit because their hearts and minds are set on the Spirit. Listen, if you're a believer this morning, you've given your life to Christ, you have a new heart and a new mind and a new spirit. Now the Bible says, this is Christianity 101, walk according to your new life. If our lives are supposed to be the temple where God resides and where his spirit fills, then we need to be people who are walking according to the word of God. Romans 2 says his law is written on our hearts. Now look back at the passage for a minute. Let's keep moving forward. Look at verse 9. Notice that there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant 
with the sons of, uh, sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. The law was the only thing in the ark. Now, the two tablets of stone that God gave Moses Sinai, you remember that whole incident, right? God writes the law on the tablets and Moses comes down. We always picture Charlton Heston at this point. If you've seen the Ten Commandments with his long beard and walking very slowly and dramatically like only Charlton Heston could do. I don't think it was like that. Moses is coming down. He's got these two huge tablets of stone. What does he see in the valley? He sees the people naked, dancing in absolute apostasy, bowing down before a golden calf that they built with the help of the high priest and saying, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And Moses, in his righteous anger, throws the tablets down. And after the whole mess, God says, let me give you new ones. They take the tablets of stone and they put them in the ark. These represent the essence of the law, which God said, don't forget my law, don't forget my precepts. But what do we see Israel doing throughout its history? We see them forgetting the law. Even though they know it's right, even though it honors God, even though it pleases God, they forget the law. So God says, before they go up, before he goes up onto the mountain, he says, I'm going to make a conditional covenant with you. Turn back, keep your place here, turn back to Exodus 19 just for a minute. In Exodus chapter 19, as they're camping at the base of Sinai, they've gotten out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, they come to Sinai in the wilderness. And the Lord calls Moses up to the mountain, up to his presence, and he says, I'm going to establish a reciprocal agreement with you. A bilateral covenant that's taking place. Look at verse 3 of chapter 19. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did, there's a little foreshadowing, what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle wings and brought you to myself. Now then, verse 5, this is the covenant. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you get how many times God uses the word I and my? Don't miss that. When you see that many pronouns from the Lord, he is saying, pay attention, because this is about me. And you need to be giving honor to me. These are the words... End of verse 6, that you're to speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And notice the people's response in verse 8. All that the Lord, excuse me, all the people, all the people, Holy Spirit's not uh, embellishing here, everybody answered together. So it's unanimous, it's in one voice, it's in unison. They all said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And the Lord, and Moses brought back the words of the Lord to him. All the people answered together and said, all that God has said, we will do. God says, here's the covenant. This one's conditional. It's not like the one I gave to Abraham where I said, I'm going to do this whether you like it or not. This is conditional. If the people will obey me and I expect them to do that, I will go before them, I'll be their God, I'll bless them, they will be like no other nation. And the people say, great, we all agree, everything God says, we will do. And notice that the blessing was contingent on their compliance. If they're obedient, God will bless. But if they disobey, God will punish. He says in verse 6, I'll make you a nation of kingdom and priests, a holy nation, you'll be separate and called out and you'll have God's favor and everyone around you will know that you worship the true God. Now turn over to Galatians 3 for a moment. Thank you for having your Bibles and thank you for turning. Galatians chapter 3. Because in Galatians 3, Paul is writing to a much later generation of Jews. And this generation of Jews is saying to the Gentiles, stick with me, I know it's a lot of history, they're saying to the Gentiles, you have to follow the rules of the law in order to be saved. We accept Christ, we acknowledge Christ as Savior, but there's an add-on. And there was great conflict in Galatia 
because they're saying, unless you Gentiles fulfill the law like we have to, because they're still not getting the concept of grace, unless you fulfill the law, you're not really saved. So Paul takes the whole book of Galatians and he writes to the Jews and he says, you guys are wrong. You're wrong because you have misunderstood the intent of the law that it was supposed to just point us and prepare us for Christ. Look at verse 23 of Galatians chapter 3. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you all are sons of God through faith in Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, God gave the Mosaic law, which you were never going to obey, to be a school teacher, to be a tutor, to point the way to what was to come. We first had to understand that we're sinners. We first had to understand Romans 6.23, uh, Romans 3.23, that all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. That there's no way you can ever meet God's standard. We had to understand that first. Then as we understood that and became aware that there was no hope, the law that we disobeyed pointed us to the need for a Savior. Now God gave you clues of that with the deliverance from Egypt and all the ways that he provided salvation. But ultimately, it pointed all to Christ. And when you understand Christ, Jews in Galatia, when you understand Christ, Gentiles in Galatia, you will understand that God's point in giving the law was to show our inadequacy and to show God's expectation. So Christ comes, he fulfills the law, so we can be set free from the guilt of sin and delivered to righteousness. Now all that background, point back to 1 Kings 8 now, turn back there, and let's finish our thought. Because as they know all this, as the ark comes up as the centralized thing with the tablets of the law, now let's reset the picture and let's draw some application. Look at the final message that God's giving. The older men lead because they remember what God had done and how God had blessed. Solomon chooses the year of Jubilee and the Feast of the Tabernacles so they'll remember God's salvation and sufficiency. They bring up the ark so that they will remember God's presence and God's power. They bring up the tabernacle so they'll remember that God had indwelled that place. They sacrifice abundantly so they'll remember it's not about them, but about giving themselves wholly to the Lord. They have the law so they remember the Mosaic Covenant. They acknowledge what has happened when he brought them out of Egypt, something only he could have done. Now they come to the point of remembering and celebrating God's deliverance and God's power from evil and oppression and death. Now they're in the promised land. They have the, the Abrahamic covenant that was given that said this was the place. This is your land. You're now a great nation in the land I gave you. Now develop a house for me that will glorify me. Everything is set. The people are praising God. The second Chronicles 5, which is the parallel passage, says the people were singing and praising and glorifying God and saying the Lord is good and his loving kindness is forever. And the priests at that point walk out of the holy place. And look at what happens next because this is our last thought. Look back at 1 Kings 8.11. Actually start in verse 10. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The fact that immediately stands out is that when the cloud comes down and the presence of the Lord fills the house of the Lord. Listen now, the power of his presence is so overwhelming that the priests 
not only can't keep ministering, but they can't even stand up. Apparently, the brightness and the awesomeness and the amazing power of God's presence and God's glory is so overwhelming that nobody can function normally. They are so in awe that the Lord is near. Now, the people had never experienced this. Even with the tabernacle, there were some people that were out on the remote edges of the wilderness. Even when Moses was on the mountain, the people were still at the base. They heard his voice and they saw the thunderings and lights, but it, but it didn't quite get them like this is. Now, all of Israel, listen now, is in the presence of God and his glory comes down and it fills the temple and they are absolutely Utterly overwhelmed. Now stop and think about that just for a moment. Not only are we this morning in the house of the Lord, even in a Marriott ballroom, but the Lord says, I will be present among you because you're gathered in my name. So right now, the presence of the Lord is in this place. But beyond that, he says, because you're my temple, your heart, your life is filled with me. I am present with you at all times. Now, seeing what we just saw in 1 Kings 8, how does that impact how we live? All right, well, God's presence is here. Yeah, I get that. Okay. We kind of maybe walked in casually this morning. Oh, that's great to be back at church. And, and yeah, good to see you. And when are we going to sing? And but, but did we really aware, are we really aware of what we walked into this morning? When we wake up in the morning, are we aware that God's presence is with us? What was your attitude today as you woke up? I know I didn't get enough sleep, so when the alarm, my five alarms that I set on Sunday morning went off, my phone's ringing, I'm like, ah, king, 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 king. Was our first thought, I'm filled with the presence of God today. When we walked into this building, was our first thought, I'm now entering into the house of the Lord. As unorthodox as it is, this is the house of the Lord this morning. One thing I love about this congregation so far is that you have a respectful, reverent attitude toward church. I, I don't sense flippancy or, or carelessness each week. But when you look at that picture, I don't know about you, I've been saved a long time, but that sobers me. That sobers me that that was how the presence of the Lord was. And that's why we need to be so on guard against irreverence. One of the things that bugs me, and I'm going to make some controversy here, one of the things that bugs me and disturbs my spirit so much about the trends in the modern church is that the church has become a place that we think has to resemble the world. There's such a, a, a kind of a flippancy to the trends. Churches can meet in bars. We have to make sure that, that we can have our, our, our best coffee, but make sure it's ground. We don't want any sanka. Make sure we've got the nicest pastries so, so we're at the coffee shop and make sure I can have my phone on so I can text during the service and give my responses. And, and, and I don't really want to dress like I care, ultimately, when we think that way, that's where our heart's going to be. I don't know when we got to the place, my own personal crusade here, I don't know when we got to the place where everything in life has to feel like we're in a coffee shop. But where, where, when did that happen? I missed the memo somewhere. Where everything has to feel like uh, we just have to be comfortable. I, I'm going to sound really old school here. Frankly, I don't really care but I don't see any evidence in the Bible that we're supposed to adapt the house of the Lord so we're comfortable. I don't see any evidence in the Bible that we're supposed to adjust so that we can reach people for Christ. In fact, 4,000 years after this passage, don't you think we need quite a bit less of the I'm having a latte at Starbucks feel and much more of the reality of being in the presence of the Lord? Uh, for me, that's true. Uh, you may disagree, that's fine. We can still be brothers and sisters. But for me, that's true. 
I need less coffee shop, and I need more of the visible presence of the Lord. Imagine right now, as we stood and sat here, if the visible cloud of the Lord came and filled this place. Would we care at all about the brand of coffee and about tweeting? I mean, really. That's, very, that's a very uh, sincere statement. It would be the last thing on our mind. Because ultimately, and I'm done with this, four thoughts. Ultimately, the presence of God, being in the presence of God to worship him, should bring four things about in our lives. Number one, it should humble us. It should humble us. The priests couldn't stand to minister. Well, if they're not standing, what are they doing? They're on their faces. There is posture to worship. That's why we don't lounge back and lean back in our chairs to sing with our arms crossed. Holy is the Lord. Let me pull out my text, my, my phone for a second. Hold on, I got a text. Holy is the Lord. That's a great song. Let me put that on my Facebook site. Holy is the Lord, God Almighty. There is posture to worship. And at this point, the people fall on their faces. There are very few things in life that will bring us to our knees. But there is no doubt that the presence of the Lord does. And when the glory of the Lord is there, you know it. I remember the first time I ever went to Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York, and as soon as I walked in the door, it was as clear as I'm standing in front of you. I sensed in my spirit the presence of God is in this place. I don't mean just I'm at church so God's here. I mean God is in this room. And I wept. I remember a night in Dallas where I was sitting alone, distraught personally, and I looked out and I saw lightning flashing just silent summer lightning, and I watched it for two hours, and I knew that the presence of God was there in that room with me. I remember when I stood at Golgotha, and I stood at the garden tomb, and I stood at Galilee, and I said to myself, Jesus Christ was right here. When you know the presence of the Lord, it doesn't make you say, well, look at me. It humbles you and breaks you, not because God is harsh, but because God is holy and he's gracious, and he's compassionate, and he loves and forgives. The presence of God should humble us. Second, it should fill us with awe and respect. I want to encourage and, and challenge you every time you walk into this building for church, come in with reverence and awe and respect. As you wake up tomorrow morning, as you go to sleep tonight, remember that you walk in his presence. Third, it should cause us to worship. Deuteronomy 14 says that his house is the place where he's established his name. That was part of the impetus for us choosing the word rock in our name and choosing the word tabernacle. This is supposed to be the place of his presence. Coming here, listen now, is not supposed to be like going to the mall. When you come here, we come to worship, we come to praise, we come to exalt, we come to bless his name and study his word and call on his name and encourage and build each other up and to rejoice in all that he has done. Every week needs to be like that. And fourth, and finally, thank you for listening so well, we need to desire for his presence to be here. We need to ask for his presence to be here. When David died, and God comes to Solomon, and he says, ask for anything you want. Solomon says, I remember that my father walked with the Lord. And Lord, the best thing I could have would be to have wisdom. And then, I never remember this till this week, after Solomon woke from his dream, because he prayed this in a dream, he got up and he got dressed and he went and he stood before the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant was the place of God's presence. And it says he made an offering to the Lord. There's no more Ark. There's no more Holy of Holies. There's no more cloud, but Christ has walked with us. His spirit indwells us, and we, like the Jews, are called to be set apart, living by his spirit, walking in holiness, living in his presence, bringing glory to him at all times. And as individual believers and as a congregation, we need to be asking the Lord, God, be present with us. Sunday morning, be present with us. Bible studies tonight, be present with us. 
Monday night Bible study. Be present with us. Wednesday night at one at the school. Be present with us. Every day as we wake, be present with us. What can be better than that? What could have been better for them at that moment as the cloud came down and they fell to their faces and they said, He is Lord. And honestly, what could we want that's better than that? Oh, I pray, church, that the Lord will be with us. We sang that song, I've preached too long. You are welcome in this place. God of power and of grace. Holy Spirit, guide our way. Saturate our soul. What a great song that is. Every minute, every hour, every day that God would bring his presence to us and fill us and strengthen us and show us his power. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I pray that you have spoken, that I have not gotten in your way. And Lord, that you have refreshed our spirit this morning, that the greatest thing that we can desire is to live and walk in your presence. Lord, where you are present, there is fullness of joy. Where you are present, there is power we cannot fathom. Where you are present, we worship and praise and exalt you. You alone are worthy. So, Father, as we go from this place today, as we go about our week, we pray that we would live and walk and revel in your presence. May we not become casual in our faith and casual in our devotion. May we honor you and serve you in every single way, every moment as we live. Lord, we invite you. It seems brash to even say that. But we invite you to be present every time we meet as a congregation. We ask your presence to be among us. We invite you every day to rule our hearts as the indwelling presence through the Holy Spirit to rule and reign in our lives. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, we are your servants and your children. May we honor you in how we live. We thank you and praise you for your work of mercy in our lives. And Lord, we love you every day more and more. We love you for who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.